Tanner, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. We're going to be reading um, from the book of Genesis today, chapter 7, starting in verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, and on that day, all the mountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark there, they and every beast according to its own kind, and to all the livestock according to their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. This is the word of the Lord. You know, it's really interesting, like with our boys, uh, Thomas has a younger brother, Will, and Will, he just turned one this past week, and there's just so much, like with having a newborn, an infant, growing into a toddler, right, you have everything associated with the nursery, getting it ready, a lot is wrapped up in the decor, right, and being able to make sure that everything looks right for baby, and I don't know, it's just so funny, I guess being a pastor, being a minister, that, you know, people just feel compelled to get you religious gifts, Like, I can't tell you, like, early on, like, how many decorative crosses that we got. Like, I mean, we could have filled a whole wall, filled, like, just made our own abstract collage of all of these decorative crosses, but also, like, for kids' toys, right? And so, Thomas, he was given, like, a set of the fruit of the Spirit, and it's just like little bean bags of fruit shaped in different things. I'm like, you, you can get him Legos. Like you don't have to get him these churchy kind of toys to be able to play. But he also, when Thomas was a baby, he was given a Noah's Ark set and had the little finger puppets and everybody, you know, try to push them in the Ark. And you know, it's really interesting about how Noah's Ark gets so associated with kiddos, right? That there's a lot of times that we're going through. And I think, you know, for some people it's like, ripe material for the coloring sheets because you've got all the animals, right? You know, they go in, they go two by two and it's a great way to be able to go through with the alphabet, right? You know, you got the alligator in there, you got the baboon in there, you got go on and on and get everything into the ark. But you know, there are things that are left out of the nursery set because if we were gonna be consistent, right, with looking at giving a child that Noah's ark set, then, you know, you have the mobile that hangs over the crib, right? You know, that kind of spins around. Well, if we were gonna be consistent, you know, what we could do if we wanted to make something similar is I've heard that we could put the four horsemen of the apocalypse that are going around and just, you know, coming in on tunes of the Valkyrie, right? You know, that they are over here that we have both being acts of judgment on God, like from God, on the earth. Sometimes that looking at Noah's Ark, it can become sanitized. It can become cute. It can become fluffy. It can become something that is just relegated to the coloring sheets. But as we're going through in this series and as we are reconsidering some of these stories, 
the famous story, some of the greatest hits throughout the course of scripture, that what we're gonna see there may be some things that we missed the first pass. or Maybe the last time that we went through these in depth when we were doing the coloring sheets in Sunday school. And the first thing that I want us to be able to see as we consider the story of Noah in Genesis chapter six through chapter nine, the first thing that I want us to be able to see is this, that God grieves over sin and God punishes sin. In other words, God takes sin seriously and he grieves over it. He grieves over it. Well, where do we get that? Okay, well, let's look over here at Genesis chapter six and we'll pick it up in verse five. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, I gotta stop right there. Do you see all of the negativity that is being piled up right here at the very beginning? That we have that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In the verse six, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. Wickedness, here in this primeval account, is just piling up everywhere. That we're able to see last week when we were talking about Adam and Eve in the garden, that sin was let loose in the world and took up residence inside every human heart. And then we were able to see it wasn't, they couldn't even get past one generation of humanity, but it was in their own offspring in Cain and Abel that were able to see the violence of one brother rising up over the other and killing him. Well, if you go and you look a little bit further down in Genesis chapter four, there's this cat named Lamech. And Lamech, he said, if Cain's revenge was sevenfold, then Lamech's is going to be 70-fold. He is writing songs about slaying other people. And that God, as he is looking at this, it is like the Wild West on steroids, all concentrated right here in the ancient Near East. And sin has taken up residence in the human heart. And then we get this verse that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And y'all, I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you, this verse has puzzled people for a long time. And there is a large discussion that can be uncorked in going through and talking through this verse. And if you're the kind of person that wants to go through and have that deep kind of conversation, I would love to talk with you. Let's schedule a time to be able to do that. I'm not gonna be able to do all of the justice for this particular verse tonight, but I wanna go through and at least give us some handles to hold on to as we consider this phrase because it can trip us up. When it says that God, the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, let's consider what this does not mean. Right? That the Lord regret, regret that he made man on earth. This does not mean that God changes his mind. Right? This is what we could consider the doctrine of the immutability of God. That God does not change his mind. We see this in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. That the Lord, he does not change his mind. It, he is not surprised or taken aback. That he is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Right? And that this verse, it does not mean that God is overwhelmed with emotion. This is going to the doctrine of the, what's called the impassibility of God. And so God in his immutable nature and his impassable nature that he, he is not changing his mind. He is not overwhelmed with emotion. He does not experience human emotion like we do. But what we're seeing here in this verse is what we could call accommodation. Accommodate, what do you mean by accommodation? That God who is wholly other, 
that God, who is in a category all by himself and trying to communicate to us some of what he is like, it doesn't always compute. I was talking about it in Village uh, two weeks ago with the folks over in our living room across the street. That sometimes that we have to use figurative language in looking at the scriptures. Because let's just say, for instance, that you had somebody from ancient history, right, that came and was dropped in our living room and we had this TV that was hanging on the wall that had like a scrolling picture of whatever, you know, Apple has, of the scenes, uh, you know, in nature right now. And that we have the sound bar and the music that's playing and then we have something that heats up the food that they, without having a frame of reference for where they were being dropped into, they would have great difficulty being able to describe what it was that they saw and what they experienced. And so there are a lot of times that like in the Bible, like you get in the book of Revelation, y'all, right? Like John the Revelator, he's over there all the time being like, well, yeah, it was like this and it was as this and oh, it had the appearance of this because he didn't have the vocabulary. He didn't have the bandwidth to be able to describe with full effect what it was he was experiencing. How much more so is it when we peer into the very essence of God, Right? And what we have so often through scriptures is what is called anthropomorphisms. And you're like, what on earth is that, Blake? Anthropomorphism, it's, it's a literary device where it's saying this, that God has a strong right hand. That God is spirit. We know this is true from other places in scripture. That God is spirit, that he doesn't have a body. God the Father. But Scripture, it gives literally that he has strength and it's pictured in him having a strong right hand, right? Or if we go through and we see that the eyes of God see to and fro on the earth, not that God has physical eyes with a cornea and retina and all of those other kinds of things, but that God sees, God knows, God is aware. They're using this human kind of language to try and understand. But God, when he comes and he's trying to accommodate himself to us, uh, there was the uh, reformer John Calvin who said that God in accommodation is like a mother who lisps to her child and who tries her best to explain things that are too much for the child. It happened with Thomas this morning before he was going for school. You remember back? He comes up and he's like, mama, what does love mean? And we're like, this, this isn't about Poppy Peters, right? It's a little girl in this class. They save seats for each other. It's adorable, but we're like, we can't do that right now. Okay, you're four. But we're going through and he's like, mama, what is love? And she's like, well, what do you mean? And he's like, people say I love my class, but I'm not really sure I love my class. And so we're trying to take like this, really when you have a kid and you start, they start to ask for how to define terms and someone comes and looks at to you and is like, mama, what is mercy? Dada, what is grace? And then you are trying <laughs> with the full weight of the scriptures that have been invested in you throughout the course of your life. This something that is so significant, something maybe that has shaped you to a deep level. And then you are having to try to accommodate, to explain, to not dumb it down, but speak true in an accessible way to a child in a way that they would be able to understand you. And you're like, it's like this, that this is what is happening right here. You see, because God is a being in a wholly other category Right here, he 
does not experience regret in the same way that we do. We see in 1 Samuel 15, Saul, first king of Israel, right? At the end, kingdoms ripped away from him and the Lord says, I regret that I've made Saul king. But it's not as if God has made a mistake. And he actually clarifies this even in that same chapter, further down in chapter 15. He said, the Lord is not like a man that he should have regret. So when God is regretting, it is not like with us that, oh gosh, I'm really regretting last night. I'm really regretting that meal choice. I'm really regretting this major choice. I'm really regretting this, that, or the other, something that's beyond his control or your control. But God, he, what it looks like, what this does mean, God is not a disinterested observer, but he is invested in his creation. And what he sees that is happening to the world that he has created, it has grieved him to his heart. That is, we're getting to peer into the existence of God. And here we learn he doesn't experience grief in the same way, but there is a sense in which our sin affects God. That's something that we need to be able to see right here from the very beginning of the Bible. One of the reasons why this story is here is that we need to see that our sin is no small thing, no light thing, no insignificant thing, but that it affects the Lord. And that we learn more about the nature of sin and wickedness. We see this. Let's skip on down to verse 11 in chapter 6. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said, no, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God is going to deal with the cancer of sin with a full forced treatment and cutting these things away. Sin is not a light thing like we talked about last week. You know, when I pulled up the N64 that almost none of you knew about, that glorious gaming system, where it's not just like dust that accumulates on the cartridge of our hearts that we can easily blow off, pop back in and continue on playing. But it is like a fundamental corrosion to the cartridge itself that there is some sort of fundamental change that has happened. And God is coming in judgment against sin. And y'all, people get bent out of shape when we start talking about the judgment with a God who judges evil. But it's really interesting. Miroslav Volf, he was a professor at Yale. He lived through a lot of the persecutions that were happening in Croatia, seeing family members killed, seeing livelihoods stripped away, seeing utter devastation on a land that he loved. And he said, people who start to balk at a God who judges evil are mostly those who live in the suburbs. People that have never experienced it, evil, wickedness, in a heightened way. For folks that have endured this, knowing that God grieves over sin and punishes sin is a comfort. And this is a key for understanding the rest of the Bible, human history and the future of humanity. Here in Genesis, the way God punishes sin is with a cataclysmic worldwide flood. That he is coming and that he is going to do away with sin and its prevalence and its concentrated form. But as the history of humanity unfolds, we see that the way that God punishes sin is by the son of God taking it on himself. That this is what happens at the cross. And so we're gonna be delving into this a little bit later on, but we need to go ahead and see that sin, it grieves the heart of God and it can't just be left undone. It can't be swept up under the metaphorical rug, but that it has to be dealt with. 
It cannot abide in the holy presence of God, but everyone who trusts in Jesus, their sin is dealt with. Because you see, all who believe in Jesus have their sin and their punishment for the sin taken away. Why? Because he took it upon himself. God will not allow sin to go unpunished. And that is one of the great lies that the enemy would have us to believe is that it's not a big deal, that no one can see, that you're not gonna get anything for it. But for those who have trusted in Christ, we know that that's not true, that God will punish sin, but that he has made a way of escape. And that when we put our faith, when we put our trust, when we put our hope in him, now Christ has taken away our very sin and we are safe in him. And when God deals with sin at the final judgment, that we are now safe in the ark of Christ. So let's continue to look that we should be filled with comfort and not dread that God will deal with evil. We should be filled with comfort, not dread that God will deal with evil because evil is real. Wickedness is real. And God will not allow it to go unpunished. He is just. But at the same time, God is gracious and merciful and has made a way for escape. Let's look at this next session. God gives grace and saves. It's not just that he grieves over sin and punishes it, but God gives grace and saves. Look at this in verse eight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so we look at Noah and we're like, well, what was special about Noah? Nothing. Nothing was special about Noah. And did you see what it said that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord? It wasn't because he was better than all of them. He was a part of the lump sum. He was a part of humanity. But that word that it says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, it's the same word that could be translated grace. That Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so how was Noah saved? the same way that every other human in all of human history has been saved, by grace through faith. Folks, in the Old Testament, it was by grace and through faith, looking forward to one who was to come, the promised seed of the woman that we looked at last week in Genesis 3, 14 through 16. And now we, what they knew by faith, we know by name and we have the name of Jesus. And all who have faith in him, they now are saved by grace. Look at Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. Noah's mentioned in there. And why is he there? Look at what it says. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. I love the way J.D. Greer, he's a pastor up in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, the Summit Church. Some of y'all might be familiar with him. But J.D. Greer, he likens coming to Christ, following, responding in faith. He paints the picture of it's like waking up in an ambulance. And that honestly just kind of gives me anxiety from the very get-go, you know, just trying to imagine that. But he says, imagine that you are waking up in an ambulance and there's an EMT there. You have to consent fully They are not asking you to get up and assist. That would hurt more than help. The EMT will do all the work. Your role is to just go along with it and allow them to do 
their work. This is what God desires for humanity and this is what God desires specifically for you. That you would respond in faith and his call of grace, that you would believe him, that you would believe in him, that you would trust him, that you would desire him. And that in doing so, that you would then be able to walk in obedience. Oh, that's a word that we don't like to talk about. Obedience. Now, there's a reason why, sometimes for good reasons, that we don't wanna talk about obedience. That there maybe was a day and age in the church where obedience was just really launched to the forefront. And when we start to think that we have to obey our way to a good standing with God, then that that is problematic. We can never earn our place through keeping the rules. But when we respond by faith through the grace that is given to us from God, then we live transformed lives and we walk in obedience. This is what Noah did. Look at these three places. We're going to go through six and seven. Genesis 6, 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Look at 7.5. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. 7.16. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. You see, the call for us and the desire that God has for his people is for us to live with grace-driven, faith-fueled obedience. This is our call that we are to live with grace driven. That is the ground. That is the fuel. That is what we are moving forward. The very road that we are on and faith fueled, it pushes us forward. Obedience. Walking in the commands and in the ways of the Lord. You see, Noah was not obeying to earn the favor of the Lord. He had received grace. And the call to salvation. And now he was walking in obedience in the ways of God. And it was a long road of obedience. He had to build the ark. And I really wish that we were given more than just the blueprints for the boat. I would have loved to have heard how it was done without the use of cranes or large heavy machinery or crews. We're not given those kinds of things. But it was a long time. And if we were imagining Noah being in that day and age, building a boat in a time where it had not flooded yet, and people are, it would be like if you were going through and you were building a boat in the middle of the desert, right? It's like, we're nowhere near the ocean, bro. Like, I don't know what you're doing building that boat all the way out here. They probably said it a little bit more colorfully than that. You know, I mean, we read the beginning part of chapter six, right? But he is doing and going in this long obedience in the same direction, to borrow a phrase from Eugene Peterson. That there is this, he's in the long game and he is following in long obedience in the face of a lot of derision. Noah, it has never flooded before. And what we have for us is right here, write this down, an encouragement to go against the current. An encouragement to go against the current. To follow the call of God in salvation and walking in his way, it will create persecution. You are going against the grain. You are going against the current of the culture. And you might be tempted to listen to the shouts, to the whispers, to replay the stares and the snickers that are going on behind your back. Listen to the encouragement to go against the current. Walk in obedience. 
walk in what you know to be true because you see popular opinion is a poor indicator of truth. I'll say that again. Popular opinion is a poor indicator of truth. Now you don't have to have it all figured out. That's not obedience. That's making an informed decision. That a lot of times obedience is doing it because the Lord has said this is the way in which we are to walk. It's like that old timey hymn that we learn sometimes when we're kiddos, right? Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So Noah, he is building and building and building for a long time until he is 600 years old. And then the day finally comes. And it's the passage that Cole read for us just a moment ago that the two by two, all of the animals brought in that Noah and all of his family. And then do you see what happens at the very end in verse 16? And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. The Lord sealed the door. God graciously saves. He makes a way of escape through the judgment. And that God right here is going through an act of decreation. Did you notice that? Especially in light of what we talked about last week, that right here, we have in previous a creation account that happened right in Genesis 1 and 2, that the waters receded and the land was there. Well, now the waters are coming back. That everything that was made is now being unmade. And what we have right here is a micro earth floating in a primeval barge. And God protects. God is faithful to keep his promise. God has not utterly abandoned humanity. Noah and his family are kept safe and they are on the ark, if you start to do all the math, for 370 days. A little over a year. That's a long time to spend with family. Y'all remember quarantine, right? And especially with a whole heap of animals, my goodness, don't know the smells. But they are there and they weren't left there. Because this is what we pick up in the last section for tonight. God remembers and helps us to remember. God remembers and helps us to remember. We pick this up in chapter eight, verse one. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. And the thing again, right here, God is omniscient. It wasn't as if God was like, oh snap, Noah and the ark, totally forgot about those cats, right? No, it's, that is not at all with God. It's not the opposite of forget that he remembers. This remembering, God's remembering is implying a movement that he is going to act based on a previous commitment that he is faithfully keeping his promise. It's like when the scripture says that God remembered his people in the land of Egypt. That they were there in the midst of persecution, suffering and enslavement. And then God sent Moses and Aaron speaking a word of deliverance that he remembered his people. And it's like Christ coming to us. If you look at the beginning of Luke chapter one, verse 72, Zechariah, he's overcome and starts speaking prophecy And he said that this is the Holy One, God coming, remembering his holy covenant. 
that Christ's coming is an act of God's remembering his people. So God has acted and he brings out Noah and his family and all of the animals and establishes his covenant, his relationship agreement, his divine human understanding in chapter nine, verses 11 to 17. And we're going through and we could look at this. Let's look at just a couple of these verses. God says, I'll establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is his promise. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. When you really start to go through and go slow and you look at this section, you see that the rainbow isn't just a nice little arch with pretty colors. God refers to it, it has the imagery of that of a weapon, that God is hanging his war bow up, that the judgment has gone and passed. The time for that is over. And I really love the way Sally Lloyd-Jones, if y'all are familiar with her, she did the Jesus Storybook Bible. We go through, we love reading that with Thomas. And I I just love the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones says it. She said, at last the, the boat landed quite Uh, suddenly on top of a great mountain. And as soon as it was safe, God said, out you come. And so they did, everyone skipping and dancing onto dry land. And the first thing that Noah did was to thank God for rescuing them, just as he had promised. And the first thing God did was make another promise. I won't ever destroy the world again with water. And like a warrior who puts away his bow and arrow at the end of a great battle, God said, see, I have hung up my bow in the clouds. And there in the clouds, just where the storm meets the sun, was a beautiful bow made of light. It was a new beginning in God's world. It wasn't long before everything went wrong again. And this is the part that doesn't make it on the coloring sheets because it's not very long after Noah comes out with all of the animals that we think, oh yeah, there's this new beginning. Oh, this is this new Adam figure. Well, what does he do? He goes, he plants a vineyard, he's in a garden, he gets blackout drunk and naked and passes out. We don't have coloring sheets of that, thank goodness, right? But it doesn't take long for the floodwaters to recede and for him to be able to come out and for us to be able to see. We have a little bit more of a picture of the one who is to come, what it looks like to respond by grace through faith. But Noah's not the savior. Noah's not the one. We need a true and better Noah. We need one who will live the righteous life in our place. We need one who will fulfill God's commandment and walk perfectly in obedience, not just for a time, not just for a season, but for the entirety of his life that is wrapped up in his being. We need one who grieves over sin and who took the punishment for it himself. Let's put the story back up on the screen real quick. We'll finish it up from Sally Lloyd-Jones. That's why from before the beginning of time, he had another plan, 
a better plan, a plan not to destroy the world, but to rescue it, a plan to one day send his own son, the rescuer. God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not on his people or his world, no. God's war bow was not pointing down at his people. It was pointing up into the very heart of heaven. We need a true and better Noah who grieves over sin and who doesn't just punish sin but takes the punishment of it on himself. That we need a true and better Noah who gives grace and saves through his death and through his rising. We need a true and better Noah who remembers his people, who moves towards them, who keeps his promises and then helps us to remember. Because you see, the sign of the covenant that God made with Noah was that of the rainbow. But now for us, the sign of the new covenant through Christ, the sign that we have is the cross. That just in the same way with the rainbow says, I will never again destroy the earth with water. Now the cross says for all who are in Christ, they will not have the punishment for their sin visited upon them. The call is simple, to follow Jesus, to trust him, to obey him. No sales pitch. Walk in his ways. He's the one who has come and defeated every sin. The one who's come that we could have new life again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that you, in dealing seriously with that which separates us from you, God, that you have dealt with it fully and finally in Christ to the point where he can say it is finished. I pray for all who trust in him today, God, that we would be renewed, that we would have the encouragement to go against the current. And God, that we would not seek to walk in wickedness or to redefine your word, but that we would hold fast to your truth, that we would resist evil and the evil one, and that we would be pleasing in your sight as we walk after Christ. Would you help us in our weakness? We ask this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano podcast. If you want more information on the songs that we sing at Oxano, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.